You're listening to an audio sermon from Trinity Bible Chapel. For more information, please visit our website at trinitybiblechapel.ca. But I'll read from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 21, beginning in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before you. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments." You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood afar off. It said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, and you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Bow with me, please, for a word of prayer. God in heaven, we draw near to you by our Lord Jesus, our mediator and high priest. O oh God, sanctify us and counsel us by your word and your law. We pray that this would be nourishment to our souls, that you would strengthen us. O oh God, restore backsliders and save sinners. Empower us with the anointing of God be upon the preaching and the heard word, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. So we're looking at Exodus 20, verse 1 and 21. These are the Ten Commandments. We've been in them now for several weeks, and we'll be in them for some time now. This is a series I'm doing on these Ten Commandments that have come to us by the finger of God as he engraved them in stone for Moses and the congregation of the Hebrews in the desert. And the Ten Commandments have a unique place in the Old Testament, I've noted that. They are distinct from the ceremonial and civil laws of the Old Testament. There is a distinction there. Some people say that distinction is artificial, a fabrication. It's not. It's actually there. And I've tried to demonstrate that, especially in my first sermon in this series. Ten Commandments have abiding authority. The, there is an abiding authority of the Ten Commandments that remains in effect even today. It is foundational as a body of law to 
the covenant that God made with Israel as well as the covenant that God made with his church. Foundational are the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are the revelation of the natural law of God. The constitution of all nature and reality. The universal constitution is the natural law which is revealed in the Ten Commandments. And the natural law is distinct from positive law. So you should understand this distinction. I've noted it several times over these last few weeks. And so there is a distinction between the natural law, which we see in the Ten Commandments, and what I have called positive law. The natural law is the constitution of the universe, and the positive law are the laws that God enacts within the context of covenant that he can revoke at will. But the natural law, unlike the positive law, is irrevocable because it is embedded into the very constitution of the universe. So the distinction is between natural law and positive law. We've been taught how to, I have attempted to teach you how to consistently apply the Ten Commandments to all of life, and we'll get to the First Commandment in a couple of weeks and look forward to seeing how that applies. And last week we began in the preamble to the Ten Commandments, the preamble. And the preamble grounds the law. So the preamble states the truths that the law is grounded upon. So when you're reading the preamble, you're asking, why should I believe this and why is this bound to me? Or why am I bound to it? Why is it binding? That's what the preamble tells us. The preamble grounds the law. The law is not so much of our laws today that are legislated are not grounded in anything. They're floating around there like a balloon in the air. It's the inclinations of men's hearts that finds its way into legislation but is not grounded in anything that is immutable or unchanging. But the Ten Commandments are not like the legislation that you see today which are changing with the times and are grounded in the whims of men. The Ten Commandments are grounded in the very immutable character of God, the immutable person of God. And so because God is immutable, so his law is immutable. Because God is unchanging, so his law is changing. Because God is firm and inflexible, his law is firm and inflexible. This is who God is. And he reveals himself in the law. And the law is grounded in the preamble. And the preamble tells us who God is. And so... If the Ten Commandments are the first principles of law, the preamble declares the first principles of the first principles. So what is the basis for law? Not only what is the basis for law, but what is the basis for reality itself? That's what the preamble answers. The basis for reality itself and the basis for the law of God is found within the preamble to the Ten Commandments. Why are the Ten Commandments authoritative? What is it about the Ten Commandments that make them hold? What is it about them that make them anchored? Or as I said last week, the Ten Commandments are the 
all true law should be based in the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments are therefore based. What makes the Ten Commandments based? The very foundation of law. Okay? That's what I'm asking as I come to the preamble this morning. If the authority of the Ten Commandments is found in God, the preamble is the doctrine of God. This is who God is. And so the preamble is about God, who He is. And so let me begin with my first point as we seek to ground the Ten Commandments in the person of God. And my first point is this, God is. God is. That's my first point. This is the preamble that we're in. The preamble grounds the Ten Commandments. What is it about God that makes His commandments binding and authoritative? And the first thing that we learn about God as far as His speaking is that He is. Now, the first thing we learned about God was last week where it said, and God spoke all these words saying, but the first thing that God says is that He is. So God speaks, and then God, by speaking, reveals himself, and he reveals that he is. He is, in other words, he is self-existent. He is the self-existent God. There is no life given to God. All life is from God. He exists because he exists. He lives because he lives He becomes because he is. He is because he is. He will be because he will be. He has been because he has been. God simply is. He is the first principle of all reality and the first principle of existence. And if you want to wonder why, if you sit around wondering why our world is so confused and upside down and backwards right now, it's because They've removed the first principle of reality, and if you remove this fixed point of reality, which is God, all of a sudden reality becomes skewed and you can't even perceive reality. That's why we stand in the confused and dazed world in which we stand. The fixed point of reality, which is God himself, has been removed from the minds of the people And therefore, they can't even perceive the way the world is. Because God is not in their minds and in their hearts. And so they are lost and they're upside down. But God is. As Matthew Henry said, He is self-existent, independent, eternal, and the foundation of all being and power. Therefore, He has an incontestable right to command us. He that gives being may give law. Think about that if you want to for a minute. I think you should. I think you should think about this this afternoon and you should talk about it at the dinner table. Self-existent, independent, eternal, and the foundation of all being and power. Who else can you say that about? Nobody. Nobody. He doesn't depend on anybody. He doesn't need anybody. He wasn't created. He simply is and was and will be. He is being. He is existence, and all existence finds its existence in him. All being finds its being in him. All that is finds itself in him because it comes from him, 
because he is the basis and the center point of all existence. And the first thing that God says about himself, we're told that God speaks, and the first thing that God says about himself is that he is. And this is in the statement here, I am the Lord. I am the Lord in verse 2. This is revealed, or he is revealing himself as the self-existent one. Last week we learned that he speaks, this week the first thing that he speaks is that he identifies himself as the Lord. You'll notice in your Bible that it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Well, when you see that in your Old Testaments, it is translating the actual name of God, which is Jehovah. It's translating Jehovah. When you see capital L and then minuscule skill O, R, and D, it's translating the generic name for Lord, which is Adonai. But this word, when it's all caps, is indicating that he is revealing his sacred name, which is Jehovah, or as some pronounce Yahweh. Last week we learned that he speaks. This week the first thing he says is that he is Jehovah. And the word or name Jehovah is derived from the Hebrew phrase, I am. So God reveals himself first to Moses in the burning bush, if you know the story. And God says to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 14, from the burning bush, God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent you. And that's from where you get the name Jehovah, similar in the Hebrew. And then in Exodus chapter 2, or chapter 6 rather, 2, verse three, or two through 3, God reveals himself again. And he says in Exodus chapter 6, verse 2, God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord, I am Jehovah. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But my name is the Lord, my name is Jehovah. I did not make myself known to them. Or did not make my name known to them. And that's an interesting statement because Jacob wrestled with God in Genesis chapter 32, verse 29. And Jacob asked God in Genesis 32, verse 29. He said, Jacob said to him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So as Jacob wrestled with God, he tried to get the name of God out of God. And God wouldn't give him his name. He just blessed him. And then here is God presents his law to his people and he speaks from Mount Sinai in the hearing of all the people. He hears what Jacob wanted to hear, but didn't hear. He hears the very name of God. God says, I am Jehovah. And the name Jehovah is the revelation of the self-existence of God, whereby he says to Moses, I am who I am. Tell the people that I am has sent you. Simply meaning that God is. He is being itself. In and of himself, he is being. And here the people of Israel received what Jacob wanted to and didn't, and he, they receive it in the hearing of the entire congregation that his name, the Lord said, I am Jehovah. What a glorious revelation of God to receive the name of the self existent God. The name Jehovah, or some say Yahweh, 
comes from the Hebrew I am, and it means self-existent one, and by inference, the one by whom all else exists. You've never met a being like this. You've never met an essence like this, whose essential nature is self-existence. The first principle of all of reality. And as we reflect on this, and I challenge you to reflect on this today and throughout the week, the very nature of God is self-existent. I'll quote a few theologians of the past that I think explain it so well. John Brown of Haddington said, Jehovah denotes his self-existence, absolute independence, and unsuccessive eternity with his effectual and marvelous giving of being to his creatures. Self-existence, absolute independence, and unsuccessive eternity, meaning he is the one who is self-existent, does not operate within the confines of time like you and I do. He's everywhere, past, present, and future. Removed from these boundaries of time because he's always been and he always will be. He's not operating moment by moment by moment by moment on the clock. He's removed from these boundaries of time that constrain us, this self-existent God, absolutely independent and not confined by successive events, but enters into those successive events so that we might know him and relate to him he might relate to us, as we'll find out shortly. Francis Turton said, The eternity and independence of God, speaking of his name, Jehovah, this is what it means. The eternity and independence of God, inasmuch as he is a necessary being, an existing of himself, independent of all other, self-existent. That's a beautiful quote. And you've got to wrap your mind around this. I'm I'm taking my time talking about this because I want you to think about it. I don't want this to be a fast point that you simply move on from and maybe think about it whenever you feel like it. I want you to reflect on it. Herman Bavinck said, God is independent, all-sufficient in himself, and the only source of all existence and life, Yahweh, or Jehovah, is the name that describes this identity most clearly the independent, all-sufficient one, the only source of existence. You exist because he exists, and he exists because he exists. Everything exists because he exists. He's always been and always will be and is. Herman Bavinck went on to say further, God is absolute being, the fullness of being, And therefore also eternally and absolutely independent in his existence, in his perfection, in all his works, the first and the last, the sole cause and final goal of all things. You are created by God and you are created for God. The sole cause and final goal of all things. Who created you? God created you. Why did God create you? God for God, by God, for God. The cause and aim or goal or end of all things is God. Everything comes from God and everything is for God. The very center of reality is God himself, God. And it's fun and dandy to look at all these 
theologians and what they say, and I could give you quotes all day, but let's look at what the scriptures say. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Always has been, always will be God. Or Acts chapter 17, verse 24 through 25. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Or Romans 11, verse 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forevermore. Amen. Self-existent Jehovah, the Lord, is the ground of law. The first thing that we learn about God in the preamble is that God speaks. And then when he speaks, the first thing that he says is that he is the Lord Jehovah, meaning he is the self-existent one, the very foundation of reality itself. What is the first principle of all existence? Well, it is Jehovah, the Lord. So he and his self-existence stands behind the law. The law is built on him. The Lord is the first principle of law. Why is the law authoritative? The Lord is the reason it's authoritative. The, self, the law doesn't exist on its own. The law is not our invention. The law is not a man's invention. It's not an opinion. It's not a feeling. It's foundationally built on a God who exists in and of himself. There is no other being like this. And what makes the law hold? The one who holds the world together makes the law hold on us. The law. The law comes from the Lord. He stands behind the law. All existence is bound up in Jehovah. And in all that exists is bound to the law. And what makes the law hold? The Lord does. The Lord makes the law hold. And so here's what happens. If you remove God from the center of reality, which many have attempted to do in our day and age, our generation has done this, has worked hard to do this, to erase God, the concept of God, if you remove God from the center of reality, what happens is that the one with the loudest voice and the most guns becomes, presents itself as the center of reality, is the fixed point of reality. You remove God from this fixed point of reality, the one with the most ammunition and the biggest guns and the loudest voice will then present itself as the fixed point of reality. And so and that's another way of saying if there's no God above government, government steps in the place of God. This is why all tyrannical states have either tried to destroy the church or control the church. And this is why the independence of the church is from the state is so important. One of the reasons. All tyrannical states, the Marxists, the communists, they want to destroy the church. The Nazis... One of Hitler's first orders of business was to Nazify the churches so that the churches became the government's assets and their propaganda arms. The swastikas went up in the churches. 
And the small fraction, the minority of pastors that resisted became outcasts. Many of them were killed and thrown into concentration camps. Why? Because if you want a total, a, a, the totality of the state encompassing everything, the state must quench out all opposing realities. And God is the one who stands between a tyrannical state and the people. And you must get rid of the knowledge of God. Why? Because God is the foundation of law. And if you remove God, the government becomes a law unto itself, which is what we are witnessing before our eyes. How else could you? I mean, you think about what our government declares as law. It's declaring itself to be God. God is the one, the creator of marriage. He defines marriage as the union between one man and one woman. The state steps in and says, no, it's two men or two women. That's the state saying, no, I'm God. Right? God declares what a man is and what a woman is in the creation. The state comes in and says, no. No, no, that's not what a man is and a woman is. Redefines it. It's redefining reality as a declaration that it, in and of itself, is God. And then they come up with their own laws. Stepping into this sacred place, onto this sacred ground, declaring that no, God is not the lawgiver, the state is the lawgiver. If you remove God from the equation, you remove the absoluteness of his law. And then the law can morph into whatever the powers that be wanted to morph into. And it's never worked out well when that's happened. The state ought not control the church and the state ought not stomp out the church. Because he self-exists, God, he has the right to legislate, and because we exist in him, we are bound to his legislation. All of this comes from God. The first words of God in the preamble to the Ten Commandments are, I am Jehovah. And as Jehovah, he stands over our existence, is the self-existent one in whom all else exists. And is the self-existent one, he has the prerogative of law. This is the first statement in the Ten Commandments, the preamble. I am the Lord. God is. Therefore, do what he says. God is. Therefore, you are obligated to him because he is. It's the first thing we learn about God in this preamble. And the second thing we learn about God in this preamble, first is that God is. The second is that the God who is, is personal. The first thing that we see in this preamble is that God is. The second is that the God who is, is personal, is relational. He, he enters into our reality to relate to us. He condescends to us. The God who is, is personal. Moving from, he moves from declaring his self-existence in the statement, I am the Lord, to personally attaching himself to his people by saying, I am the Lord, your God. 
That's a statement of relationship, of personality. Uh, he's not just the Lord by the statement. He's the Lord, your God. And if it weren't for this, if it weren't for this statement, if he didn't add to I am the Lord, add your God to that so that it becomes I am the Lord, your God, if he didn't add to that the knowledge of his self-existence when you encountered this God would make your hair stand up, it would turn it white, it would make your blood run cold, and it would frighten you into a horrifying terror. If it were not for the fact that he adds to his, his first statement, he adds to that that he is your God. Your God. Otherwise, you would be struck with a frightening and horrifying terror that would be so deadly you wouldn't survive it when you encountered him. An encounter with a self-existent God who is not your God, living in his manifest presence, who is not your God, but yet is self-existence, I think is the very definition of hell. There's no mercy or love at all in that. But here he is personally attaching himself to his people. And the, with love and tenderness, where he says, I am the Lord your God. I am your God declares that the self-existent God loves us, cares for us, is patient with us, listens to us, speaks to us, and will be with us forever because he is personally ours by relationship. This is gospel. This is gospel. Thomas Watson said the word Eloiha, which is the word our God or your God, thy God, is so sweet that we can never suck all the honey out of it. This is pure sweetness. And so that to his people, he is not a distant lawgiver, but a personal lawgiver. The self-sufficient, self-existent lawgiver, by these words, your God, comes to live with us, not as a removed, cold, distant lawgiver, but as a friend, a helper, a father, and a bridegroom. So that he comes near to us and fellowships with us like a friend. So that he serves us like a helper. So that he provides for us and protects us like a father. And he dotes over us like a bridegroom over a bride so that we become the very apple of his eye. The distant, self-existent one now becomes the imminent, near, personal one. I am your God. Your God. Let's look at some scripture passages here. At Hosea chapter 2, verse 14 and 16. Therefore, behold, I will allure her, this is God speaking, and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. 
And there I will give her her vineyards and make the valley of Acre a door of hope. And there there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as at the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. And in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal. See, what's that tell us? The Lord loves his people like a husband loves his wife. With doting affection personal admiration for his people as a husband does his wife. Or how about this, Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8. For thus is the Lord of hosts, after his glory sent me to the nations who plundered you, for he who touches you touches the apple of his eye, so that the people of God become the apple of his eye, the darling of his affection the object of his love, his most protected possession, the crown jewel of Jesus, is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The one that he likes to display with honor and eventually will glorify is the church of Jesus. So that the God who is, is the God who loves, and the God who is, is your God. And you become the object of his affection. How about this, Psalm 25, verse 14. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. So that God is your friend. God is like your husband, and God is like your helper, and your father, and your friend. This is pure gospel. And why should we heed his law? Because it comes from one who personally loves us like a father, like a groom his bride, like a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Why would you heed his law? You would heed his law and you receive his law because the law of God is coming to you from one who dotes over you like a groom over his bride and who sticks closer to you than a friend who sticks closer than a brother and who is your helper and provides for you like a father. And so God unveils the Ten Commandments, the natural law of God, not to make you miserable and not to make you happy, but to say, here is the way. This is the good way to live. So much does he love us that he does not leave us without his law, but by an act of sovereign grace presents the revelation, the clear revelation of his natural law so that we are not bound in ignorance, but we can live in light. This is the way I have designed the world, he says. And he loves us enough to give it to us. Loves us enough to give it to us. Why should we heed his law? Because of who it comes from. And why would we want to obey? Because, well, we love him because he first loved us. He first loved us. That this Jehovah would love us so teaches us that his law is a law of love. It's not a law of hatred, it's a law of love. 
It is his care for us. It is his protection around us. It is his guardian over us. It is his jewel on us. It crowns us. It decorates us. It watches over us while we're sleeping and while we're awake. It speaks to us while we're on the way, coming and going. It adorns us. This is the law that God's given us. It beautifies the believer. It adorns the believer. It protects the believer. It gives wisdom to the believer. He is not a distant tyrant who rules over us to squeeze the last drop of life and vitality from us. No, he is a father who provides, a husband who delights, and a friend who cares. This is God. So let's review for a moment. What's the first thing we learn about God? The first thing we learn about God is that he is. Jehovah, I am the Lord, he says. And the second thing we learn about God is that he's our God. And the God who is, is also our God. And the God who is, who is our God, has given us his law. So why wouldn't we want it? Why wouldn't we treasure it? Who else says stuff like this? Who else says stuff like, I am, I self-exist? Or who else comes near to his people in relationship? Well, Jesus in John chapter 8 says, Truly, truly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am. And that's why the Pharisees picked up the stones to kill him. Because they knew what Jesus was saying. He was claiming to be Jehovah at that moment. He was claiming to be God. Then John chapter 1, verse 14. The one who is, I am, it says, And the word became flesh, dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. And so what happens? The one who is lives among his people and enters into relationship with them, and in this case, by means of incarnating in the person of Jesus Christ. The one who is and always has been and always will be, who is self-existent, who is being in and of himself, from whom all being and existence and life comes, then takes on flesh and becomes a man and lives in obedience to his own law, and then is crucified on the cross for his own people because he loves us so much. This is God. The self-existent one who needs nothing draws near to us in Jesus Christ so that the fullness of God's revelation is found in the man Christ Jesus who became a man died a sinner's death so that we can share in his inheritance. I really hope that this moves you to thankfulness and gratitude. I hope that from hearing this, you're full of wonder at the wonderful God who self-exists and draws near to us in relationship. I hope your heart's welling over in wonder, and I hope that your minds today are fueled by the wonder of this great mystery being revealed. That the one who is 
became man and dwelt among us. And we have beheld his glory, the glory of the one and only Jesus Christ. And I hope that this prompts your hearts to fill up like a spring so that out of your hearts flow the rivers of thanksgiving because of what Christ has done and who he is, not just what he's done, but who he is. And who he is is in part so, or what he's done is in part so special because of who he is. The self-existent one drew near to us and claims us as his own. Yes, he's the God of the universe, but the God of the universe claims us as his very own people so that he's willing to publicly identify with us and say, I am your God, yours, you, you, dear one, beloved who took the Lord's Supper and ate the bread and drank the wine, receive that as a communication that you are his. He has marked you off, taken you from the world, and said, that one is mine. And you who are tormented by the guilt and shame of your own sin and Christ has now elected you by his sovereign grace and pardons you of all your guilt, no matter how horrendous your past is, he marks you off and publicly declares, I am yours. And dotes over you like a husband over his bride and cares for you like a father his children and sticks closer to you than a friend and is your helper, your God. Happily, joyfully identifying with you. And I hope that with the thanksgiving and the gratitude that wells up in your heart, that a sense of awe comes over you and that you desire to be full of worship so that the worship of God springs forth from your heart and out of your lips. And you receive great comfort from this knowledge that prompts you to sing praises to the one who is and the one who marks you off as his own, God, the one true God. And as he's drawn near to you, I hope this prompts you to draw near to him through Christ. As he entreats you to come near to him, I hope that his entreating to come near to him prompts you to draw near to him through the person of Jesus Christ. And that you will delight in him and fellowship with him and enjoy him and find great pleasure in his revelation and his law. Because he is the God who is. And the God who is, is your God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray to you and we thank you that you are. And we thank you that you have marked us off as your own. Oh God, would you bless your people with a sense of gratitude and thanksgiving with hearts that are full of worship. And we thank you for drawing near to us in Christ. Oh God, and we draw near to you by Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.